It's Radio Free 501C, the voice of Rogue Tulips Consulting. I'm Cecilia Sepp. Don't forget to subscribe. We're on all your favorite podcast services. This week, I'm joined by my guest, Francesco LaBeouf of Concordia, and we're answering a big question. Can DEI save the world? Let's find out. Welcome to episode 198. Hey everybody, it's Monday, June 5th, and that means it's time for another episode of Radio Free 501C. I'm your host, Cecilia Sapp. I'm a certified association executive and a certified nonprofit professional. Thanks for joining us this week, and to our global audience, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you may be. We are very excited today. This is episode 198 in our countdown to episode 200. So please remember to sign in on June 19th, 2023 for our 200th episode of our podcast. We're really excited. We're glad we've gone on this long. And thank you for being part of our journey. This week, I'm really excited to have first-time guest Francesco LaBeouf, who is the Associate Director of Partnerships at Concordia, which is a group that works to bring people together to increase social impact. So Francesco, Welcome to the show. Today, we're going to talk about the big question, can DEI save the world? But before we dive into the topic, uh, welcome. And would you like to say hello to the audience and tell us a little about yourself? Absolutely. Thank you very much. First and foremost, Cecilia, for inviting me. Uh, I feel very privileged because I know that the preceding 197 guests uh, have been true luminaries uh, in their field, whether it's uh, not-for-profit trade associations, professional societies, or NGOs. Again, my name is Francesco Laboff, and I'm speaking to you from my office in New York. Yes, I joined Concordia this uh, past January, uh, and it was a very interesting step after a period of uh, conducting a number of consultations in different areas. And I'm very happy that Cecilia invited me specifically about DEI, and I'll share my thoughts in a second. But I had multiple years of experience at the senior level with both uh, trade associations, professional societies, as well as corporate groups, uh, both from uh, marketing communications, but more profoundly uh, creating content for conferences, forums, summits, uh, and global events that are literally held on three different continents and multiple, multiple nations. And very happy to be here. Hopefully you'll enjoy what Cecilia and I at the dialogue uh, today about this afternoon on this very, very important uh, subject, uh, which uh, has certainly exploded in a very positive way as of recent. And I think it's a great topic. Uh, it's something DEI, for those of you who may not be quite sure what DEI stands for, diversity, equity, inclusion. And this is a very important policy, not just in the nonprofit community and our nonprofit management profession, but in the world as a whole. And I believe based on my life experience that a lot of us have been trying to do this without realizing that there is an actual policy and process for doing it. And I do remember back in the 1990s, that's when the association world really became aware of diversity and how important that was and all its different aspects. And so we really started working on diversity then we moved on to inclusion next because we used to have DNI policies, diversity and inclusion policies. Mm -hmm. And then we moved on to equity. And that's when we started doing DEI. And you may wonder, well, why do you do DEI? Well, think about what DIE spells. And that's not what we're going for. So 
our question of the day is, can DEI save the world? So Francesco, what do you think? Interesting, profound, and important question. Uh, and I appreciate you so transparently posing it, but I have to be honest, uh, and it applies to any maxim or any rule or any newly found uh, activity. No one new uh, strength or activity can save the world. So in answer to your direct question, Cecilia, I must say, can DI save the world? No, not by itself. But in our ensuing dialogue, I will also share the many, many positive attributes of this great movement that has gathered tremendous strength and tremendous steam over the last number of years and how it can make a very positive impact. But by itself, no, nothing by itself. There is not one magic bullet to solve any one problem or all problems. Yeah, I agree with you. And I'm glad you said that because it's not one thing. And I think in the nonprofit management area, we all come across those boards or those clients uh, who think we have the answer. There's, if we right. do this one thing, it will fix it, but it's really not. So let's talk a little bit about what DEI actually is. So if you meet somebody and they say, well, you know, I've, I've heard that term, but I'm not quite sure what it means. How do you explain it to people? DEI is a convergence and concentration of multiple principles and applications, which, as you rightfully said, had previously existed. They've been part of mankind, humankind, womankind from the beginning, but never had there been the opportunity to coalesce all these strengths under one umbrella and therefore make it more effective and more applicable. By that, I mean, any organization, for-profit or not-for-profit, they choose as not to capitalize on the strength of each and every component is equal to an experiment or building a model where you know you have multiple components but actually choose to leave out some of the pieces. Let me be even more clear, and I don't mean to, uh, as the very unfair term says dumb it down. I don't mean to bring it down to a pedestrian level, but let me explain. Let us imagine very popular toy, Lego, phenomenally known as Danish companies, you know, and assume that you're a master Lego builder and you're rebuilding a model of your own home. You have a piece for every component. They're masters at manufacturing, they're masters at supply chain, they're masters in packaging. So Trust me, you're receiving a content that is all there. But as you build it, you're getting frustrated, you're getting bored, you're getting mm -hmm. distracted, and you're getting somewhat agitated about not believing in everything. And therefore, you selectively remove a piece or two or three out of the 50,000 pieces in the box. You will never achieve the full form or strength or edification of the model you're trying to build. And I'm sorry for the very crazy analogy, but I wanna reinforce with our audience and hopefully they already know that because I know you have a very, very sophisticated audience of listeners and followers, but to me, the importance of DEI, like many other applications that have really gained a lot of strength in the last couple of years, especially post the pandemic or during the pandemic, is 
that we have realized the importance of something that was always there. But Cecilia, for whatever reason, controversy, objection, philosophical difference, cultural difference, we chose not to implement it. And we were the losers. The diversity of our nation and the world is only going to strengthen the functionality of an organization, for profit or not, if you choose to adopt the diversity, because the diversity is representative of the universal scheme that the globe is. By the end of next year, we're approaching 8 billion people, according to the American Demographic uh, Magazine. 8 billion people is a sizable number of people. But trust me, as they tell us, there are no two people are alike. So who has the right to choose not to include any one individual? I have um, had the opportunity to work in many circles, both for-profit and non-profit, as I mentioned, and interacted with all levels of colleagues, employees, superiors, subordinates, members, boards, and I've always marveled at the fact that I challenge myself to learn a new position or a new principle every day of every time that I was interacting with somebody else. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I felt that I was wasting my time and their time. Let me put it in context of the end. And by the way, we most likely would have not had the strength of the movement that is represented today, especially in the trade associations, professional society, travel, tourism, hospitality, where it's very, very well demonstrated. And it not been for the pandemic because it slowed things down a bit. It enabled us to bubble up to the, to the surface, bring afloat again, important principles that were lying at the bottom of the ocean, but we never chose to fish for. So again, let me repeat that because it's important, or at least it's important to me. If a tool is given to us, but we make a conscious decision not to utilize it, like the strength of diversity and equalizing the le level playing field and including all aspects, is our loss, not our gain. And we need to help those who still don't feel that this is a proper, proper movement going forward. So. Enough of my, my silly analogies and my specific belief. Let's talk about the reality. Today, employers from all segments are moaning and groaning, at least they still are, but that they're having difficulty finding the proper employee. Well, it's because they're not looking behind every door and they're not looking in every segment. Today, if you wish to bring into the fold those who are interested, passionate, qualified, and available to work on your team. You can, but you have to add a bigger mindset. You have to have a much more empathetic and open, transparent mindset, whereby you are encouraging and you're definitely rewarding those who point out the diversity because the diversity brings equality and the equality fosters and strengthens the inclusion. Those organizations that have given much more than lip service, those organizations that have adopted it as a credo are flourishing, not only from the financial standpoint, 
but they're flourishing as companies that are rated as the 100 best in each industry. Mm -hmm. I challenge you, I don't know this for a fact, but I challenge you that it may be true that if you look at the Fortune or any other magazine that annually goes through the research process of listing the 100 best companies in hospitality, the 100 best companies in the travel industry, or the 100 best associations to work for, all of them have looked at, researched, analyzed, and implemented to a certain degree, if not to a full degree, the philosophy, the notion, and the passion of DEI. Do you agree? Right. Yes, I do. No, I, you've really covered a lot of the topic already. So, no, that that's great. Uh, and you mentioned you maybe said some crazy analogies. We're all about crazy analogies here, so feel free <laughs> to keep doing that. But you, but in all seriousness, you really have a point because if you start with diversity, I, I think a lot of people misunderstood diversity, especially back in the '90s. Uh, people thought it was like counting lollipops in the box. Do I have enough cherry? Do I have enough grape? Do I have enough lemon? And it's really not about that because just because people look a certain way, they may not be who you think they are, first of all. And second of all, some people like to keep some aspects of their life private, and they don't necessarily want you to be reporting to the board what their lifestyle is, if they're on staff, for example. And the other thing is, even if people are from the same group, that doesn't make them the same. So like, for example, I'm from South St. Louis, Missouri, uh, that doesn't mean everybody in South St. Louis is like me, and I am not like everybody in St. Louis. We're all very different people, and a lot of that depends on what part of the St. Louis area we grew up in, too, which is a whole other thing. But that's one example. So within diversity, we're looking at not just diversity of what people look like, but how they think, what their life experiences are. Because even if two people grow up in the same neighborhood, in the same city, they're not necessarily having the same experiences. And if we apply that to the nonprofit world to associations that have memberships, you have members who have a great experience as a member, and then you have the members who have a lousy experience as a member. They're both in the same profession or industry. They both belong to the same membership association, but very different experiences Of course, within there. You raise a very valid point. And to give more specificity to our great dialogue, uh, Cecilia, if I may, it's recognizing that everyone brings a specific talent or asset, regardless of what they look like or who they are. And you're right, there are no two people that bring the same strength. You may have graduated with the same grade point average from the same great school and joined the same organization, but your contribution is going to be different because some are more focused on uh, issues that are technical, engineering, mechanical, and application-like, and others are more focused on the variety of human-centric activities, whether it's empathy, passion, support for the human capital, and others. But let me reinforce what you and I were saying by also adding to DEI many other movements that have existed in a dormant and silent way until the pandemic, and because of the same reason, they've been accentuated. It's because employers and employees alike have started to recognize not what they wanted or what they 
they're not ad, but what the organization is a compound was missing. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, it became easier for people to understand when you're sitting on a Zoom call with 40, 50, 60 people from different parts of the world and everybody speaking with their own dialect or accent or effectuation of the language, but at the same time with their own thoughts in an honest, transparent, unbiased way. You felt enriched. You felt at the end of the dialogue, besides the specific subject matter that was assigned to the topic for the day, you learn more. St. Augustine was quoted saying that the world is like a book and not to travel is to read but one page. How can we pretend to be part of the human species, the human race, homo sapiens, if we are not willing to understand what the contributions from other cultural settings are? And the more we know, the more we understand, the stronger it makes us. Our strength can be fed back to an organization, to a community, to a church, to a nonprofit, to a corporation. Many of us grew up thinking that perhaps corporations don't have a soul, and maybe they don't, but maybe they do. How do you demystify the notion? Look at the individual components of an organization. Right. At the end of the day, are they producing more good than bad? At the end of the day, are they doing more for society as a whole? Are they rejuvenating our desire to go forward with bigger and better things? And you need to give them a, a, an A plus, you need to give them an applause to encourage them to continue to doing the right thing. Now, it doesn't apply to everybody. I want to use an example of uh, only because I've had the great honor and privilege from the early days to work with Nicholas Negroponte, who's the famous former founder of the MIT Media Lab at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Although most of the applications, research, inventions, and introductions to society were technically uh, geared, the technology was only a tool to deliver a better world for everybody. So if we look at their model, I remember often saying to myself, this is very much like creating a vision after the research, but also at the same time, giving you the other half of the package. And what are the other half? The adaptation, the implementation. Everybody has hired a DEI guru, a DEI professional, or someone who claims to understand this important subject matter. But the true road test is those organizations that not only invested the time and effort and money, but are willing to implement it. Those are the ones that will succeed more. Going back to your great original question, can DEI save the world? By itself, no. But if you use a Hegelian philosophical approach and you put it on his head, mm -hmm. if you don't implement DEI, can you survive? That I can unequivocally, from my opinion and everything that I read, say no, you cannot survive unless you choose to research, learn, and implement the DEI philosophy. That's well, and that's definitely an important part of moving forward. I agree because I think DEI actually gives us a process for implementing emotional maturity. 
Because we talk a lot about EQ and how emotional maturity and a high EQ is actually more important than a high IQ. And I think that's really where DEI flourishes, to use your word, or grows or is successful because people are mature enough to understand everybody's not the same and let me not make assumptions and let me find out what that other person thinks or where they come from. Because one of the reasons that I'm highly aware that we speak American English on this podcast is because not everybody does. And while they may speak English, it's not necessarily their first language. Mm -hmm. And what if they speak British English? Like I said to somebody the other day, I'm not bilingual unless you count British English as a second language because I speak American English. So that's really very important because words create ideas and so the words we use the phrases we use our idioms our analogies are how we look at the world and so by really listening to how people talk and how they explain things or relate to the world around them that's how we build the understanding and that's how we can do that because i really think we're we're saying dei and i think a lot of dei just comes down to understanding working on creating understanding, learning about other people's backgrounds. Where do they come from? How did they live? What was their life like? Because you might meet somebody who seems very successful and maybe you might think, well, gee, they must have had an easy time of it. And then you find out later on, no, actually they really didn't. And they're very grateful that their life has turned out the way it is because it didn't start out well, you know, and uh, I'll use one of my dogs as an example um, because a lot of people have, you know, pets or they have rescue animals from during the mm-hmm. lockdown. A lot of people got pets. I have two dogs. The first dog I got, he was nine months old. So he was still basically a puppy. He was never really abused. They just didn't pay a lot of attention to him. And then they decided they didn't want him anymore. So they gave him away to the Humane Society and we went and adopted him. But then the second dog, he was already a little over two years old when we got him. And he'd had a very rough time of it. You know, he'd been abandoned at an animal shelter in North Carolina, was brought up to the D.C. area. He got passed around to different foster homes. We found out a few years ago he has two BB gun pellets in his body that we did not know about until they did some x-rays for another issue. So that means somebody shot this poor little dog somewhere along the line before we got him. So within his first two years of life, he got shot. Now, why somebody would shoot this little puppy, I don't know, but somebody did. But his life started out pretty rough. And so his reaction to the world around him reflected that. He was very stressed out. He was very anxious. He lashed out. He nipped a lot at first. Now he's lived with us all these years. Lived with us. He's he's lived with us. He just turned 16 years old. So, and he's very healthy. We're very grateful. But he's like a completely different dog because his life experience changed now if he would have stayed in shelters or in foster homes I mean who knows how he would have turned out but that's the thing is you don't know a person's story just like we don't know these law animals that we adopt and I think if we had the compassion for each other as human beings that we might have for our pets that would be a bridge that we could build because what I see is a lot of people seeing other instead of same because mm-hmm. when you look at DNA, you used a, the data statistic about how the Earth population had 8 billion people. India has now surpassed China as most population. Uh, yes. So when you look at that, and then you look at another statistic, 
all humans have about 98% of the same genetic material. Yet we all look really different. It's that like 1.2% difference that makes us who we are, makes us different, makes us look the way we do. So we're basically the same with a touch of uniqueness. And so I think if we could focus on not our differences, but what we have in common, that's always how we build a relationship. That's always how we can stop fighting a war. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you can stop a war simply by saying, hey, wait a minute, let's, let's just stop mm -hmm. fighting. You know, I, I think in World War I, the, the Christmas Eve truce on the front where the two sides came together and said, hey, just for tonight, let's just remember we're all people. Then the next day, they all started shooting each other again. But <laughs> the point being, for that moment, they realized they had more in common than they didn't. And absolutely, they absolutely. And in fact, I don't mean to interrupt you, Cecilia, but I wanted to, at the, I didn't want to run into the danger of forgetting uh, a point that I wanted to highlight. I am agreeing with you 100% first of all, not because it's the polite thing to do, because it is the correct thing to do. But you mentioned two specific aspects and two uh, words that I need to re-highlight to take us to another example. You talked about knowledge and learning. You need the knowledge, but how do you acquire? You acquire by willingly learning about something, which gives you an educational context and therefore hopefully help you facilitate better decisions. For decades, I've had a personal passion, and I am surprised that I didn't make many more inroads before, but I see a lot of adaptation now, not because I thought of it 30 years ago, but because it is the right thing to do. And that is, how do we research, address, expose, and combat hatred in society? I came up, not a sociologist, but I came up, I am an historian and political scientist by scholastic training, a devoted historian, but I'm not a sociologist. So I came up with this formula on my own. I said that hatred in society is the confluence of two opposing, but yet somewhat similar forces. Mm -hmm. One is fear, fear of difference, fear of the unknown, fear of not being equal to, times, almost like to the second power, cultural ignorance. And I want to reemphasize this. I don't want to insult anyone. I'm not talking about scholastic ignorance. It doesn't matter whether you only have a, a sixth grade education or you're a road scholar. It's cultural ignorance. When you take the fear of the unknown or what appears to be fear of difference and you multiply it by cultural ignorance, you're magnifying an existing problem, and instead of creating something good, you're creating a very, very big negative. It ties into what you were saying. The example of your dog, you got a two and he's now 16, he's been with you for 14 years, and he's a very, very different family pet than he was when he first got him because the environment changed. Mm -hmm. It was not the fear, and it was not the cultural ignorance. You knew how to foster the animal that you rescue from the show. And that's what many uh, kind-hearted people like yourself do. Take into the context of GI, why did it take so many millions of years of human beings being on the earth, regardless as to whether you believe in creationism or 
evolution and Darwin did teach us adapt or die. So I'm going to go with that side of the equation. <laughs> but uh, the, the point is that the philosophy existed and for us to have ignored it was wrong. For us to have ignored it was cruel. And for us to have ignored it, we slow progress. And progress is when you can bring the benefits of societal structure, not to one or two, but to all 8 billion people. We're no different, and yet we are. We may think differently, we speak differently, we may look differently, but we are all components of one universal gathering. And especially those of us that spend many years in trade associations and professional society and NGOs, know that we live and die by the participation of people. It is the convening. It is the membership. It is willing to give. It's willing to volunteer. Without it, it doesn't work. So as a shout out to everyone who may be listening or will be listening to your great podcast, not because I'm on it, your great podcast. <laughs> well, I'm yeah. sure you'll attract a wider audience. <laughs> I, and I hope that that only diminish that. Uh, I love to remember the 198th uh, episode and that the 200 is on the 19th of June. Important day, by the way, as you know, as of recent again. But let's stop the hate. Let's implement the AI. Let's look at individuals because they are a reflection of ourselves. Let's look at individuals because they are the other part, the other piece of this great Lego structure that we're building without it it's not as strong with it it's much better and the strength of diversity will add organizations grow exponentially do better and for those who are strictly focused on the pecuniary rewards they will financially do better also but in reducing hate we reduce apprehension in implementing dei we are reducing negative effects that have slowed down the progress in society. Right. And again, we did not invent anything. This has been talked about by Socrates and Plato in a different context thousands of years ago. You can go back to biblical references for one side or the other, or you could go back to the very beginning of the formation of our great planet. How can the planet exist if there's not a cohesive Coexistence by all the elements of our society. Those who oppose DEI also negate climate change. Those who oppose DEI also negate the strength of every species. And it is our job for those of us who have taken the time and the passion to learn about the subject matter, to share the thought, as painful as it may be because we're not always going to be welcome and accepted for a message. But then again, many great leaders have talked about messages that were difficult to share, whether it was Mother Teresa or Mahatma Gandhi or Albert Schweitzer. If the message is proper, if the message is correct, if the message is honest and transparent, we collectively have an obligation to share it. So those who believe in it, please pass it along. Those who don't listen to Cecilia's podcast and learn more about it. <laughs> well, I think that's an interesting point about hate and having to eradicate that. Uh, I really, there are 
I'll be honest, there are certain people on this planet I really, really dislike. Uh, really nobody that I would say I hate. Uh, so when you talk about hate, I think a lot of times people might connect it to anger, but anger is an emotion. And so what emotions are, are energy, and it's how we choose to use that energy and define our actions that can be defined as good or bad. Hate is a choice. That is a mindset that you adopt. If you say, I hate this group, or I hate that group because they don't look like me, or they are from a different country, or they practice a different religion, everything in human society and in human history, because I also studied political science, so I was in a political science history program, and my emphasis was poli-sci. Everything in humanity, when you look back over our history, the way our societies developed, the way our civilizations have risen and fallen over time, they're evolutionary. So we always take something and move it forward. So whether it's the evolution of monotheism, so it started out with Judaism, went on to Christianity, and then Islam was the next iteration of monotheism. When you think about that, before we were pantheistic, we had many gods which I think in some ways was kind of cool and more interesting. But uh, when you look at that, it's evolutionary, how we approach the world, how we look at it. We've taken a lot of things like from the Roman empire, how it was so well organized. It had a lot of good roads. It had a Senate. It had people were, some people were able to vote. And so already back at that time, you've mentioned Aristotle, I'm sorry, not Aristotle, St. Augustine, a lot of St. Augustine's uh, work and knowledge was informed by the ancient Greek philosopher. So again, evolution. So we're an evolutionary species. You know, humans didn't always look the way we are now. We're now Homo sapiens. In the past, we were once Cro-Magnons, and before that, we were Neanderthals. And you know, about being open-minded and trying to learn about other people, I actually got quite offended one day when I I actually heard President Biden refer to some people he was annoyed with as Neanderthals. <laughs> And I was kind of offended because the Neanderthals actually were pretty cool. They were actually a lot smarter than they used to be given credit for. And they were actually more adaptable. Now they ended up either marrying into other groups of humans and disappearing, or maybe they did just die out because there was a competition with the Cro-Magnon group to get resources. But so I was offended because I had learned about the Neanderthals and found out, hey, they were not these cavemen. Not to defend the defend them, but I will say that I know that he did not mean it in the derogatory sense that we wow. are interpreting it, and he just meant that as not applying all of their great skills in well, the decision-making process. When I, okay, I'm going to disagree with you on that, because when I heard it, it sounded like an insult, like they're just a bunch of Neanderthals, like they're not thinking, like they could. I was trying to neutralize that, that the emphasis, and no, it's okay. I'm the host. It's okay if people get mad at me. <laughs> so, but I'm just saying, because I had learned more about this group of predecessors of humanity, I was insulted on their behalf. Like, hey, you're using that like an insult when they're not. Like people kind of look back and go, oh, well, they weren't very smart. They didn't know how to do stuff. They actually kind of did, you know. The very first human that was identified by the leakies, you know, almost oh, more than, I guess about a hundred years ago now was Lucy in Africa. She was one of the first humans, but not like even Cro-Magnum or Neanderthal, definitely not Homo sapien. Although 
when you look at some of the stuff going on in the world today, you wonder, are we really the smart humans? <laughs> because yeah. that's what homo sapien means. I wonder sometimes. We don't we use- are, We oscillate sometimes and it depends on, on the mood and the day and the environment. Or, but- well, it's like, it was kind of interesting when Russia invaded Ukraine and a Russian model tweeted, this is the 21st century. We shouldn't have wars anymore. I thought she had a point. <laughs> We should not have wars, period. But the problem is that the disagreements lately, although there is so much progress in the DEI environment and empathy and social responsibility, ESG, all these great activities or uh, presence that already existed, we bring them to the forefront. But at the same time, there is a schism greater than the parting of the Red Sea that is more pronounced today than it has ever been. Now, partially because of instantaneous communication and dissemination of information due to the advancement of technology. But at the same time, if you look uh, at the conduct, even in Congress, the separation down the aisle, it has never been. You and I both know as political scientists and historians, if you look back at the history, there have been some very, very difficult periods in American history. But never has there been such a schism of philosophy. And it's not even a philosophy. It's just, I am going to disagree with you because I don't like you and because you're different, period. No substantive dialogue, no rapprochement, no willingness to listen to the other side. You don't have to agree with what I said and vice versa. But at least you're giving me the courtesy and I'm replicating and exchanging the favor with the same degree of courtesy and respect by listening to each other's point of view. The entire concept of the rule of law and our system of jurisprudence is based on that. We have to listen to both sides of the fence and the impatience, this hatred, this growing sense that I am right, you're wrong, there's nothing you can do. You cannot possibly convince me that I am wrong and you're and you're right, is a very exclusive, isolationist, insular approach to the philosophy of mankind that hopefully the many great things that we're doing will be able to move to the side, negate, and surpass. Right. And there's and that's a very good point. It was uh, something I was thinking about the other day is why is everything all or nothing now? You know, it's my way or the highway or all or nothing, like even with energy policy. Is we had to get rid of all the fossil fuels. It's like, well, wait a minute. And then some people want all solar and some people want all wind. And, and then some people might support hydro power, but then some people are against that. And it's like, well, well, when did it become all or nothing? What's wrong with having a mix? Because some fuels are better for some things. So like fossil fuels better for long distance truck driving when you're hauling a lot of heavy materials across the country, for example. Whereas like solar power is great for generating electricity and mm-hmm. so is hydropower and wind power can also generate electricity. So and why- nuclear, by the way, let's not forget nuclear. There's advantages okay, to nuclear. I, you know, we have gotten rid of so much of our nuclear power that I just don't even think about it anymore. But you're right, Francesco, some nuclear power. I think we've learned our lessons uh, from Chernobyl and from Three Mile Island. Fukushima was a natural disaster that really Mm -hmm. had nothing to do with the performance of the people on site or 
the usefulness, or I shouldn't say the usefulness, but the quality of the equipment, because some of what happened at Chernobyl was not just human error, but oh, you know, pushing the equipment further than it could go. Of course. Get enough course. to go as far as they were pushing it. And then Three Mile Island was a lot of human error. And Absolutely. so what are we doing with that? And if we could solve that problem of where are we going to put the nuclear waste, see, and that's the issue, because I know some people have said in the past, why don't we just throw it into the sun? Well, we don't know what's going to happen you right. know, if you throw all those nuclear, you know, yes, stars are kind of nuclear explosions, but let's not make it any worse. And then you can't just shoot it into space because there might be other beings in yes. space. And what if our lands on their planet, right? So if we could solve that problem, or if we could solve the problem of fusion. By the way, you raise a very excellent point that I was going to try to bring up before we adjourned, Cecilia, and that is, if history has taught us anything, it is important to go back and look at it because it gives us a platform to make better decisions today for tomorrow. You were talking about the how do we get rid of nuclear waste. Mm -hmm. How do we know if you throw it against the sun, it's not going to be better or worse? Well. History has taught us a lot of lessons, and we need to understand that when we are taking some actions without at least contemplating or analyzing what the potential reactions are, we are creating a problem for future generations. Yes. We may be solving a short-term situational issue today just for the immediate gratification and comfort, not knowing or caring for the matter how it will affect people a hundred or a thousand years down the road. Each historical period has been as important for the development of the future as each segment of the human race, as you detailed very eloquently before, was as important in bringing us to the state where we are today. Just like that, the DI activity that we spoke of at the beginning, and the question you posed to me, can DEI save the world? No, but no DEI can certainly hurt the world. And I wanna quote myself again when I said at the very beginning with the analogy of the MIT Media Lab and their great success in perpetuity about knowing that if you research and come up with something important, and you find out what's the best way to implement it to benefit others, not you, but others, that's when you really get the advantage of your research, your analysis, your study, your education, your learning process, you're giving back to society. You know, and that is, I just realized how long we've been talking, Francesco. This is the kind of conversation I love to have. It's deep, wide-ranging, and connects information and knowledge across a lot of different domains. I'm used to saying because of CAE. No, you're a wonderful guest. Thank you. And I appreciate you saying that. I hope uh, it's a uh, deserved and not polite uh, comment, but uh, I look forward <laughs> to hearing comments from it and, and talking to anyone who's interested in hearing a few more ideas about it. Yeah, so you gave us a great closing thought already, Francesco. So if people wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way to find you? I am a prolific user of LinkedIn, and LinkedIn only. I don't use many other social uh, communication sites because I found that LinkedIn is much more professional and more applicable to a business-to-business environment. You can look me up on LinkedIn for just Colabal, or you can email me, and 
uh, in my personal email uh, won't be proper work. So it's my first initial S, like in Frank, my little initial C is in Charles, my last name, L-E-B-O-F-F, like in Frank, E, the number six, like the month of June, <laughs> at gmail.com. Again, oh, fclebov6 at gmail.com. I welcome any comments, any input, and it doesn't always have to be favorable as long as you allow <laughs> me to respond. Please allow difference of opinions to flourish. It goes back to the original implementation referred to the old Roman Senate. It wasn't perfect, but it was better than having no dialogue at all. So, Cecilia, I am grateful you invited me. I hope that it doesn't break your streak of 197 consecutive great records and see what happens. But I enjoyed it. I hope I contribute something to the dialogue. And look forward to speaking with you again if I'm allowed the opportunity. And again, don't forget, if you think of something that is great, learn how to implement it and share your knowledge. Share. That's advice for everyone to take going forward. So I want to thank again my guest, Francesco LaBeouf, who was here trying to help us answer the question, can DEI save the world? And we do know it's a tool that should be in our box. So uh, please do share comments. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, because you don't want to miss any more of these exciting episodes and deep conversations that get you thinking. We have to go rogue for now, but if you'd like to learn more about Rogue Tulips Consulting and how we can help your nonprofit bloom outside the box, check out our website, roguetulips.com. If you are interested in getting the CAE or earning credit for your renewal of the CAE, or you're just a curious sort like myself and you're interested in our education program, we are already working on our fall schedule. If you would like to go to our website, the 501cleague.net, and sign up for our Notify Me form. We'll let you know as soon as registration opens and new programs are available. Don't forget to check out our Second Wednesday series. Uh, we offer a webinar on the second Wednesday of the month. So check out those different topics as well. So on behalf of myself and Francesco, thank you for joining us this week and we'll see you next time. Thank you.